We're going to welcome um, one of our own, Kyle Van Houten. Am I saying your last name right? Did I say yes. it right? Okay, good. Um, Kyle, how long have you been here? 50 years. <laughs> okay, no, seriously. Uh, about uh, before Tony, I guess. Um, that's sort of a defining mark. I got here, I came during Lent of 2017. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's give him a welcome as he um, brings God's word to us. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. And I know when uh, she was praying just now, and she said, Tony's on vacation, you probably heard like a wah-wah, right? Um, but I do, I do have a little bit of training in this, um, so uh, bear with me today. I want to talk about, um, can you do the first slide, please, Kayla? Uh, I want to talk about um, this season that we're in right now is, um, is kind of a reminder of how things are supposed to be. Right, the uh, the Thanksgiving scene, the can you go to the next slide, please? Uh, the the kind of trappings of Christmas, the lights, the hot chocolate. I kind of refer to it as a season of hot chocolate and hugs. And um, this is a um, this is probably Christmas Eve is one of my favorite days of the year, if not the favorite day of the year, because of all the anticipation is kind of coming to a point, and it's just about to begin, and that's like the most exciting thing, right? Um, but it also stands in sharp contrast to how a lot of us are feeling. And it can be a season, not just of a reminder of how things should be, but perhaps of the things that we don't have, or the things that we've lost. Or if your life isn't perfect, it can sort of magnify that gap between where you are and where you want to be, because everything around you right now is just bright and shiny And when I look at pictures like this, that one, um, I kind of think um, it's, there's some element of fiction to this. I'm looking for the person who's fallen on the ice and has hot chocolate across their shirt and has stinky armpits. And that's not in this picture, right? But that is our life. And so the message that I want to give today is that suffering that we experience um, is not just an individual thing. It is a deep truth about our universe. And so if you experience that, you have tapped into something that is profoundly true about our existence. However, that is exactly why Jesus came. The incarnation is to enter into our suffering and to deliver us from it. And so that is the point of the Incarnation. So I want to talk about uh, three things today. The hope of Christmas and what it really is. Um, A centering scripture for us to encourage us to take heart. And then lastly, a few resources and hopeful practices to sort of put us on track and to remind us, even if we're suffering or if we don't feel great or if we're depressed, if our minds go to something that is gives us anxiety, maybe some things to get us back on track. Because those things are going to happen. And even in the middle of December, even with there is a beautiful, golden, delicious turkey on the table, there's still a lot of pain within ourselves and within our world. So let's begin. Um, next slide, please. Um, I am... Was, did we miss a slide? Okay. 
Um, I'm a biologist. Um, I study sea otters and bluefin tuna and climate change. And um, I'm the chief scientist, the director of scientists at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Um, however, I did go to divinity school. And that may seem kind of out of balance, but when I was a young man, I was deciding to do those two things. I'm a scientist by, by sort of who I am, and I'm a scientist by training. But I went to divinity school because I was really motivated by this thing called extinction, which is the eradication of a kind of plant or animal, a kind of creature from this planet. And extinction is a fascinating word. It comes, it means to put out a light, to like there'd be a candle and you just snuff it out. And that word first appears in the English language in the Book of Common Prayer, not in a scientific text. And it comes in the infant baptismal prayer that the pouring of the water over the baby, over the child, would make thy sins extinct, would put out the fire of one's sin. And I grew up in the church, and so I, I read the Book of Common Prayer, not that edition, because that was in the 1500s, but, um, but it's really motivated me that we talk about extinction as a scientific word, and yet it seemed like a theological act. And so I wanted to do both science and divinity at the same time, so I did. Um, and, um, but I did not go to become a pastor, I went to become a scientist. And so... Um, I did, can you have the next slide, please? So it got me a lot of cross-disciplinary work. This was one of the first articles I ever published as a scientist in the journal Conservation Biology. And you can see there's some theologians in here as well as scientists. So part of my project that, part of my intellectual quest that I've been on is to bring these two worlds together and not to sort of choose, but to refuse to choose, but to do both at the same time. So the hope of Christmas um, the, um, we named our daughter Hope Noel, and we did that. Um, so her name is Hope Christmas, French is, uh, Noel Christmas, and Santa Claus is in French, Papa Noel. Um, so we named her that, um, because we wanted, we wanted to remind ourselves, we wanted a prophetic reminder. She was not born on Christmas. Usually someone who has a name Noel is born on Christmas. But we named her that because we wanted to remind us that God stepped into our lives to give us hope. And there's a specific scripture um, that I'll get to in a second. Um, but the, the main hope of Christmas, I want to talk about four things. These are not the only four things that, that are hopeful about Christmas. But these are four very important things. And as a side, I will stay up here after the service is over. And if you have any questions, I'm going to throw down some pretty heavy ideas today. And if you have some questions about the scripture, or if you have some questions about it, I'll be up here and I'd be happy to chat with you afterwards. So the hope of Christmas, that by becoming an incarnate person in Jesus, God affirms that creation is good. This is very important. He affirms that the creation is good. Um, in Genesis, you see um, in the creation story, God creates things, and he says, not just that they are good, but they are very good. It is like the best good that can be. So when he makes something, he says it's very good. Sometimes we, uh, in, the in the history of Christianity, we have sort of gone back and forth, and sometimes we lose sight of the fact that all of creation was made as very good. And we create these things called dualisms. Like there is a distinction, very strong distinction between the body and the spirit. 
By becoming a person, God affirms that the body is good, that creation is good, and that the spirit and the body together are the way it is supposed to be. And that's not something that we always realize. In history, Plato, for example, continually referred to the body and created things as bad. And his whole philosophy was set up to overcome the physical world. It is not our job to overcome the physical world. That is Jesus' job. The creation is good and the spirit is good, and together we are both body and spirit. So by becoming a person, Jesus is affirming the goodness of creation and attacking those kinds of dualisms. It also reminds us, the good news of Christmas, is that we are not our own creators. Now, we are tempted to think about that. We have a lot of technology. We have a lot of creative abilities. We are created in God's image. We have abilities as creatures that other creatures do not. However, we are not, we are still creatures. One of the things that when I, I usually, when I speak to congregations, I speak about a doctrine of creation or environmental stewardship, because that's what I spend a lot of time writing about and thinking about. And one of the things that I do is I do this exercise where I go through the Latin classification system of humans, and I go backwards from species through all the way to kingdom, and it ends up at animalia, right? And people are like, wait a second, we're animals? Yes, we are creatures. And sometimes that's hard for us to remember, but we are not our own creators. Now, this means that we have limits. There are limits to our creaturely existence. And that is not always a fun thing to celebrate because it has teeth. We can only run so fast. We can only jump so high. We can only live so long. There are limits to our existence. But by Jesus becoming a person, he is reminding us that he is the creator, he is the Messiah, and we are not. But he invites us into his journey as the Messiah. Third thing, it establishes something very important, further establishes it because it has it elsewhere in the Bible, the moral priority of the weak. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before. But this is probably most commonly come out through the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor. Blessed blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who suffer. Um, The moral priority of the weak, God became, he chose the weak things of the world to reveal himself. He did not come as the general of the Roman imperial army. He came in Nazareth, not in Jerusalem, not in Rome. One of his disciples, when he later calls him uh, Nathaniel, uh, Philip says, hey, come listen to this rabbi. He's saying all these great things. And, and he's like, tell me more about this guy. And he's like, well, he's from Nazareth. He's like, Nazareth? It's like, that can't be, right? The Messiah is not supposed to be there. Judas Iscariot, who later betrays Jesus, Jesus one of the great teachings I think that's very insightful about Judas was that he was a zealot. He was a very fervent passionate Jew, and he did not reject Jesus because he didn't think he was the Messiah. He rejected him because he wanted him to overtake Jerusalem and Rome via a violent coup, and he wasn't doing it in the way that Judas thought he should. That's why he betrayed him. Some think he did it to trick him, to force him into being forceful, but Jesus didn't do that. And the moral priority of the week reminds us that the widows, the orphans, the outcast, 
those who don't have power, that is why Jesus came and came in the way he did and lived the life he did as a carpenter with 12 friends walking around, helping out those who needed help. Not in a position of power. He didn't go to Harvard. He didn't become a general. He didn't become a president. That wasn't his thing. And the moral priority of the week is a very important way to read the scripture and a very important reminder because it is not often what we go to in our own lives. Fourthly, by becoming a person, Jesus, and this is very important, accompanies us in our suffering. We are not alone in our suffering. He had a dad. He had a mom. He had a brother. He had friends. He knows what it was like to be jilted. He knows what it was like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be alone. He knows what it's like to be told or to be commanded to to do something that he should not do. He knows what it's like to be insulted. He knows what it's like to experience physical pain, more physical pain than probably anyone else um, has experienced. But this is our Savior. He did all of these things. Um, The passage in Hebrews 4 is really good on this. It says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but was tempted in every way that we are, yet he did not sin. So a scripture I want us to focus on is John 16, 33. Now this is um, the Hope Noel verse for my wife and I. This is, uh, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. For me, this is really the heart of the Christmas message. This is the heart of the incarnation. This is not the Christmas story. This is at the very end of the Gospel of John, and this is what he says to his disciples to encourage them before he is about to be taken and judged and trial and crucified. So this is sort of the end of Jesus' arc on this planet. But for me, it really brings home the point that he came to rescue us and became a person to do that. So the, the, there's a couple words in here I want to I get into. The Bible is obviously not written in English, which some of us don't remember. It's written in a few languages. But here, this is Greek. And a lot of the language in here is sort of military language. Um, it is about battle. So the first one I want to focus on is... Um, in me, you may have peace. This is a great word. It's Irene. And I think the, the name we use, Irene, comes from this. And it is not just a, a peace. It's, it's, a, it's kind of, the translation is brilliant. It's exemption from the rage and havoc of war. Exemption from the rage and havoc of war. It is complete tranquility and lack of fear. Can you think about a time when your life has been described by Irene, by complete exemption from the rage and havoc of war? Now, a few of us in this room have probably seen the rage and havoc of war, but this is the complete exemption of that. So this is the promise that we have. In Jesus, we may have this peace. But we are in the world And the world is not our home. And in this world, we will have strife or trouble. And in this passage, this word trouble is a great word too, though not as as fun as irene. Um, It is flipsis, which is a weird word. 
flipsis. And this word is to be caught in a vice, is literally to be in pressure. And those of us who have struggled with depression or anxiety, you can feel like literally there is a 300-pound gorilla sitting on your chest. It is suffocating. That is thalipsis. It is pressure. It is, it is on top of you. It is suffocating. It is constriction. It's anguish. And what's fascinating about this passage is that Jesus does not say that we won't have this. He does the opposite. He guarantees thalipsis. He guarantees this sort of anguish and pressure. But he gives us an out. And again, I want to say this again. We will experience thalipsis. That is a promise. That is a guarantee. But we may be delivered from it by the, by the peace that he offers. So he encourages us. So that's kind of a heavy message, right? But he says, Tharseo, lift your spirit. Take heart. Have courage. Courage, take heart. It's basically the same word. Take heart. Lift your spirit. And then the next word, um, the overcome word, is basically the same word as Nike, like Nike shoes. It's have victory in battle. So I have told you these things so that you may have complete exemption from the rage and havoc of of war. In this world, you will be constricted. You will be under a lot of pressure. You will have trouble and strife. But lift your spirit. I have already won. That is the message of Christmas. And Jesus could only say that in that way if he had become a person. And that is what we are celebrating today. So um, I want to say a little bit. There's going to be an old man that comes up, I think, next. Yep. Um, This is Charles Darwin. I'm a biologist. And I spent a lot of time studying this guy. And I've taught a class, several classes on Darwin. I've read everything he's written, even his diaries. And I want to tell you that as a biologist, if you pay attention to the suffering of the world, you see a lot of it. Uh, Darwin did this. Uh, He was a man, if you don't know about him personally, that struggled with anxiety and depression. But he never saw Jesus in it. He was trained theologically. His father was a famous minister. Um, His whole family had a lot of priests and uh, churchmen in it. But he, uh, Darwin, lost his mom when he was eight, and he was very close to her. And that was, uh, he never got past that entire life, his entire life. And he lost his daughter when she was 10. And during, you may know that he was a biologist, went on a ship, went around the world, spent a lot of time in the tropics. Um, he got a pretty nasty tropical disease, and it plagued him the rest of his life. So that towards the end of his life, he was not going on victory tours and book tours around the world and getting showered with praises. He was sick, and he was suffering from a disease that was affecting his heart. And so this was not a man who was a joyful, happy man. He was very acquainted with suffering and grief. And he could not get past the suffering of the world. He did not see the Savior in it. Now, what's important about this is the next man right here is Thomas Hobbes. This is Hobbes of Calvin and Hobbes. John Calvin, Thomas Hobbes is the cartoon Calvin and Hobbes. It's named after those two people, and that's a true story. So think of this man as like a fun tiger. Um, So Hobbes was not a fun tiger. 
Hobbes wrote a book uh, of political philosophy called The Leviathan. And in this book, he basically said, all of nature is havoc of competition and strife and competition. And there's a lot of losers and there's a huge struggle and it's very difficult. Fun times from Thomas Hobbes, right? <laughs> but this was a political philosophy that he said, the world is this way and it needs to have strong governance, right? So the, um, the next person is Malthus, who is an economist. And Malthus said something also really important. He said, population is growing exponentially, but our resources that sustain population are growing linearly. So when the human population gets above the resource production, a lot of people are going to lose out. And so Darwin saw both of these things and said, the, the havoc and the competition and the strife and suffering of nature is not just for humanity, as Malthus says it. Darwin had been to the jungle. He had seen all the snakes and the vines and the jaguars. And he knew that that strife and competition was cosmic. It was for the entire created universe. And with the own suffering in his own life and seeing what he had, which few English men or English women had seen at the time in the jungle, he could not get past that and his faith did not endure. So some hopeful practices here for us. I'll get back to Darwin in the jungle in a second. Um, one thing that I have found to say, to say these things that I've just said is one thing. To understand them and to live them out is a challenge. So some things that you can do, some practical tips um, that I've learned along the way and I've been taught uh, in times of suffering. Um, one thing that I would encourage you to do, these are recommendations, I don't have it all figured out. But one thing that I would encourage you to do, to try to praise God out loud with your voice in all circumstances. This is a challenge, but when you do it, I'm just saying you don't have to be strange about it, okay? You don't have to be in the street corner and be like, la-da-da, right? But you can just say, praise the Lord and mean it at all times. Now, I've tried to do this at times, and it is very helpful to learn how to praise God with your voice at all seasons. Let me show this picture coming up. So this is a picture I took in Peru in a place called Tambopata where I did my master's research when I was up at Stanford. And that little hut right there I made, it was a blind. And you can see it's kind of dark inside. There's nobody in there. Um, but I actually had to dig a hole next to the riverbank and I would sit. My research was to sit in that blind and to watch that clay cliff because hundreds of parrots would come and descend on that and eat the clay. And my job was to research their social interactions and figure out why were they eating the clay. It's not food, right? And they're really smart birds, right? If you have a pet parrot or if you've seen a pet parrot, they can vocalize. They have supposedly the memory of a three-year-old human. I don't think that's true. But, they, um, but this is a fascinating sort of natural event that happens in the world. And it happens here in Peru and really no place else, a couple places in Peru. And um, I would go there, sounds really romantic, from about 5 a.m., complete dark. Imagine hiking through the jungle at 5 a.m. in the dark with this little headlamp. There's like things that live at night that want to eat you, right? 
And I would go out there, and I would sit in that blind, and there's a little hole, and I would get my little scope, and I would count the birds. And that's what I did for four months. It was terrible. (laughs) I basically got eaten alive by bugs in 90-degree heat. And in that time, I had this little book with me, um, my little field journal. It has, I don't know if you can see it, but it has mold on it from being in the jungle because everything molds there. I got very, very, very sick when I was there. And I had to come back, and I uh, had to be on chemotherapy for a month for a disease I got when I was down there. But when I was in that... 95 degree heat, getting bitten by bugs. One day I counted 246 bug bites below my knees. I started, I brought this book and I would write out praise songs and I would just sing them quietly to not disturb the birds. But I would do that as a practice to remind me that God is greater than my circumstance. And honestly, it wasn't that bad. There's a lot worse things that could happen. Uh, one of the favorite, one of my favorite things to sing was a doxology, which is just uh, something that came in the Episcopal Church that I was growing up. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Him, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I would sing that. I wouldn't say it. Um, but you know, if this is if this is hard for you to praise God, I would say we have a good reminder from. Uh, those who uh, speech therapy one therapy for stuttering is singing sometimes people who can't speak regularly as they might be expected to a therapy is singing so if you can't say praise the lord maybe just start with the song next thing i would say um sort of this book as well is express gratitude write down what you're thankful for journal journaling has been very important for me and kelly Um, through our our lives and keep write down things you're thankful for it could be as simple as it's not foggy today that's something to be thankful for it could be my sister texted me today i don't get along with my sister and she texted me um it could be a bit bigger like we got a puppy that's awesome um but write these things down and go back and read them and remember them Because sometimes we feel that all is lost. And when we do that, we're forgetting all of the things that we have. So expressing gratitude and going back and looking at it and remembering the good things is a very important discipline. When I lived, uh, going back to the praise songs, one of my research adventures took me to Montana. And I lived in a small town in northwest Montana called Plains. And I went to a very, very humble church there. Um, Not the most humble church I've been to, but a pretty humble one in the middle of uh, northwest Montana. And there was a couple in the church who were independent adults living with Down syndrome. And they rode back and forth in this very wide open place, a Surrey, which I had never seen before until I got to Peachy, but um, down on the rec trail. But they rode a Surrey back and forth to church. In the beginning of church, the pastor would always say, what is the first song that we're going to sing today? And Adair, it's a beautiful name, she would always raise her hand, and he would always call on her, and she would always say the same song. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us be glad. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And that is always the song. I remember the piano. We would always sing that. And I, I have to say, I was very tempted by, by hearing that same thing over again to be critical of it. The thought definitely went through my mind. Why do we have to sing this song? 
but the simple joy of that truth that this is the day the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. It's something that's very helpful for me. Now, the last thing I want to say is probably the most challenging one, and it's the one that I'm still working on quite a bit. But uh, consider the limits that we have as creatures, not obstacles to overcome, but resources from which we can grow. So maybe one of the simplest versions of this is Ten Commandments. Do not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Tell the truth. That is a constraint. That is a fence which we should live within. Now, those of you when, from a very young age, when you heard that, were probably like, well, that's, pretty, that's tough. I do not always want to do that. I kind of want to bend it a little times. I kind of want to put one foot over that fence, right? Or maybe just kind of ride along the side of the fence. But, um, but that telling the truth and always telling the truth and being truthful is a very important trait to have. And we all have experienced how we have grown by learning how to tell the truth tactfully. I would also say from the Ten Commandments, resting on the Sabbath, truly taking a Sabbath rest, which we are commanded to do, that is a constraint. That is a limit. And as creatures, we have limits. To rest on the Sabbath is to do what? It is to say that God's work is the ultimate work. And that we, as humans, with the gifts and the image of God in us, have talents and agency. But it's ultimately God's agency. And so we rest one day a week. Now, I started doing this in graduate school when I started my PhD at an Ivy League school. And someone took me aside, a very smart Christian man, and he said, Kyle, I want to challenge you. You are probably thinking that you don't belong here. It's good to think that way. He said, but all of your colleagues are going to be busting their butts, and I'm going to challenge you. Do no homework, no writing, no reading, no math, no problem sets on Sunday. And he's like, you're thinking, that's impossible. This is the biggest challenge I've ever had. How could I take off? Now, how could I now say, I'm just going to take a day off, right? And he said, but it will reframe how you approach your work in the other six days, and you will become better in use of your time, and you will learn how to rest, which is very important. And I did it, and I did okay. I lived to tell about it. But the important thing, I think, about this challenge is that Uh, limits to our lives. Some of these limits are not as easy like telling the truth. Those of us who've been around a few years may think, well, that's not that hard now. I learned how to do it. There are limits which cause us to suffer. There are physical ailments that are lifelong. There are relationships. There are circumstances that are incredibly challenging and are that are truly limiting, that are truly, truly constraining. And it's not easy to think about how these are resources for us to grow. But the message, I believe, of the incarnation is that we are to trust in the God who entered our suffering to lead us and give us a path out of it. Not to prevent us from suffering, but to accompany us in it and to show us a way out to free us from that suffering. So I'm going to call the worship team uh, back up here, and I want to pray for us. And a reminder, I will be up here to answer any questions you might have after. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses and who is not tempted in every way we are. Um, We do have a Savior who knows our experience, who knows our circumstance, who has felt our pain, even more excruciating pain. And that pain is not just for us as individuals or for us as people, but is a cosmic suffering for the entire universe. But the good news, Lord, is that you entered this by your own choice, even though you made this universe, you entered it, and you offered us a path out of it. We thank you, Lord, that you entered our weakness to give us a way out of it. I pray that you would give us peace in our hearts and allow us to praise you with our voices every day, despite the suffering that we see or the memories that we have. Lord, lead us to a better way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.